Welcome to this edition of The Luke Winstall Show. My next guest is Clayton Truder, author of new book, Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Clayton, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing great, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to talking about the book, and it's just a pleasure to be a part of the podcast as well. Definitely. Glad to have you here. Well, first off, let's begin with the premise of your book. The title says a lot. First off, explain your title. What's behind it? Sure. Uh, Loserville is a it is, refers to the Atlanta in the 1960s, and 1970s. It comes from a, a newspaper article, actually, in 1975. Louis Grizzard, who was the editor of the Atlanta Constitution at the time, ran a two-page front, a two-part front-page series called Loserville, detailing the struggles of Atlanta's pro sports franchises in the 1960s and 1970s. And that's essentially a lead into the premise of the book. My book is about the pursuit of Atlanta or Atlanta's pursuit of pro sports in the 1960s, and in the 1960s and 70s, the response by fans to the teams. Atlanta is the first major American city to go out and explicitly pursue pro sports writ large for their community, bringing in all the teams from the four major professional sports leagues. Between 1966 and 1972, Atlanta goes from having zero major professional sports franchises to having teams in all four of the major professional leagues. And in many ways, this proves to be a tough situation for Atlanta in the sense that Atlanta has so many teams so quickly, um, has a lot of people who are transplants from other parts of the country, has locals who already have their own sporting interests, and it proves tougher than the franchise owners and the city leaders in Atlanta expected for these teams to develop solid, steady fan bases and also more difficult for these teams to succeed than initially anticipated. Awesome. Well, now let's go into your background in terms of credentials, what's gotten you interested in this book. Let's start at the very beginning for you. When did you first get interested to the point where you're willing to go out and write a book about Atlanta sports? About 10 years ago, I was in graduate school at Boston College. I have a, I have a PhD in history, and I was looking for a topic for my dissertation. My areas of interest are U.S. cultural history and the history of American cities. And I wanted to write about the impact of professional sports franchise relocations on American cities in a general sense. My advisor suggested that I should pick a particular city to focus on, one that has been greatly impacted by this. And there's no better city to choose than Atlanta, since Atlanta used public money to try to lure pro sports franchises, made an explicit effort to hype itself to the major sports leagues to get franchises. So Atlanta, if you're going to look at the impact of it on a particular location, you can't choose a better one than Atlanta. And I, I turned it into my dissertation, which is my major project in graduate school to get a PhD. And eventually I've turned the story into a, into a book. Got you. And you're a professor at Norwich University, but in terms of the credentials and the research of the things that have gone into this book, what all did you do to gather the information, the knowledge that you very clearly have about this topic? Well, I read hundreds of books. I mean, I, I tried to have a broad sense of the, of, the, of the context through this. I spent years and years going through newspapers, both Atlanta newspapers, and also newspapers in cities that in some way had an inter interaction with Atlanta in regards to this. For example, Atlanta lured the Braves from Milwaukee. I looked at the Milwaukee newspapers. Atlanta lures the Hawks from St. Louis. I looked at the St. Louis newspapers. So I spent many, many years looking through newspaper archives, 
Also, I looked for people who were alive in the time period who remembered these things to talk about these events. So I talked to some prominent Atlanta athletes from these different teams. I talked to, to some politicians who were who were involved with bringing these events about, uh, events about. And probably most importantly, I talked to a lot of Atlanta sports fans from the 1960s and 1970s, what the experience of pro sports coming to their city was like and how they responded to the teams. How did they support the teams? How did the people around them support them? In many ways, I view this as much as anything as being a story of the fans, the choices the fans make in terms of what to spend their discretionary money on. People have a limited amount of time uh, to to pick hobbies, a limited amount of t- a limited amount of money to, to choose to spend their discretionary uh, income on. And um, uh, this is in many ways a story of the choices people made with how to uh, spend their free time. Very interesting. Well, for Atlanta being overall a city that has become a global one lately. The impact of it has been really expanding, it seems. So when you look at, first off, the history of the city in the 60s and 70s, let's dive a little deeper. What was the city doing differently to draw these sports teams, and why was that happening? Well, uh, what Atlanta had done very well since roughly the 1920s is it had been very good at convincing people in other parts of the country to bring their money to Atlanta, whether it's in terms of building a factory, bringing a branch of a large corporation. Atlanta was incredibly good at convincing people from other parts of the country to bring their money to to the South, specifically to Atlanta. One thing that helped Atlanta over time, specifically in this regards, was on racial matters, Atlanta was much more progressive than much of the rest of the South. Atlanta, by the 1960s, had a very large Uh, block of African-American voters when in other locations, African-American voting was very limited. The city's governing coalition was explicitly a biracial one, which combined African-American voters with the city's business and professional class. So Northerners were not, in in a sense, embarrassed to bring their money to Atlanta when compared to, say, Birmingham or Montgomery or or, or other cities like that in the South. So Atlanta had that advantage. Atlanta was very good at hyping itself. Atlanta was a very business-friendly environment with low taxes. And it was also uh, much more progressive than many of its neighbors. So what Atlanta does is basically uses the hype machine it had created to try to lure, say, you know, Ford Motor Company to build a factory in the area. Use the same mentality that they would do to do that uh, to lure pro sports to the city, bringing their chamber of commerce, their business leaders, their political leaders out to to wine and dine people from these leagues and persuade them that Atlanta is a friendly environment for their teams. Atlanta also had a very lucrative television market. I mean, there were no pro sports basically between Washington, D.C. and Texas during this time period. And they told any team that came there, you have basically seven or eight states all to yourself. This will be your television market. So it was very enticing for these pro sports leagues. And also Atlanta invested money in this. Atlanta built a stadium with public money which became Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and helped to finance an arena which became the Omni Arena, the home of the home of the Hawks and the Flames. Very interesting. And when you look at the overall, what went into it, you talk about bringing out the political leaders, bringing all the different people around the city into this attempt to bring sports to Atlanta on that big professional level. Why was it worth it? Why did they decide that that was a big focus? Well, I think as much as anything, it was an issue of prestige. The city leaders of Atlanta, particularly a guy who was mayor named Ivan Allen, viewed pro sports as a way to enhance 
Atlanta's national brand, its national reputation, that Atlanta was first class in business. It was first class in many of its other uh, offer transportation, many of its cultural offerings. But it was not keeping up with, say, New York or Los Angeles or Chicago when it came to sports. And I think from his perspective, if Atlanta wanted to be seen as a peer of those other cities, they needed pro sports because it was such a visible aspect of each of those cities. I mean, Ivan Allen frequently said, I want Atlanta's name to appear in the standings alongside Chicago and Los Angeles and New York and Boston, because then that would be visible evidence that Atlanta was one of those cities if it appeared alongside them in the standings. There's also the aspect that a lot of city leaders saw it as a force for unity in Atlanta. Atlanta has many divisions, whether they were racial divisions, whether they were divisions between urban and suburban, whether they were divisions between newcomers and transplants. So he figured pro sports, or many, and Ivan Allen and many of the other leaders, viewed sports as something that would tie people together. Um, it didn't exactly work at, at first as, as intended, but um, nobody had really tried this before. So the, they're really pioneers uh, in, this, in this pursuit of pro sports. And so many other cities, whether it's Tampa or Houston or Phoenix or Jacksonville or Charlotte, basically copy what Atlanta did in the 1960s to themselves become major league cities. One thing that it sounds like you focus on a good bit in your book is, okay, it's great. They've lured the teams in, but that's not really necessarily even the hard part. The challenges of building a fan base, making money, doing what you need to do as a program, franchise, so much goes into it. What were some of the early challenges and things that you focus on in your book? Well, one major issue is ownership with, with most of these of these franchises. I think people, just because you're good at one business doesn't mean you're going to be good at pro sports as a business. It's a very specific business that requires a lot of particular expertise. I mean, if you look at the Falcons, for example, Rankin Smith, who was a very successful insurance salesman, had a very large insurance company, the largest in the state of Georgia, ends up being the guy who buys the Falcons. He relies on a lot of basically guys in the insurance business to play prominent roles in the Falcons organization. And that in many ways sets them back relative to other to other franchises who relied on football experts to uh, to participate in those positions. So and you see that a little bit with each of the franchises except maybe the Flames. The Flames really did turn things over to hockey experts quite well and were actually quite successful in their early years. But the other Atlanta franchises in many many instances had people who weren't really experts in those sports making a lot of the decisions and it showed as the team struggled in the standings. And Atlanta's inherent difficulties as a market, how suburban it is, how many transplants there are in the marketplace. In many ways, um, the, um, the novices who were running these franchises um, end up building teams that struggle for many years. This just makes things far worse in terms of attendance and local support, having poorly managed uh, organizations. Well, I know your book focuses a lot on the 60s, 70s, but when you look back, I know that you can get a good idea of looking forward. And I know you've looked a lot at what's gone on lately in Atlanta. What have those teams been doing right to start to pick up fan bases? It seems like things have picked up in Atlanta sports, especially over the past couple of decades. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing I want to make clear about my title, Loserville is not a commentary on Atlanta in the present. Atlanta's teams have been very successful in recent decades. Obviously, the Braves were, in spite of only winning one world championships, were essentially baseball's dynasty for 15 years. The Falcons have had many great teams over, over the recent past. The Hawks are an excellent team now and have been really good pretty much for about five years. I mean, with a little bit of a hiccup here and there, but things are very different in Atlanta now. I think what really changed was ownership and a change in the culture of these franchises. 
Um, Ted Turner buying the Braves and the Hawks. Um, you have a guy who comes in place who's willing to lose some money operating the teams. He eventually turns the operations over to basketball experts. And in the case of the Hawks, by the late 80s, they're very successful, both at the box office and on the court. With the Braves, it's, it takes a little longer. It takes until the 1990s. But the Braves are the best franchise in baseball. They have a great minor league system, which enables them to build to build a very successful on-the-field product and draw great fans during the uh, great uh, numbers of fans in the 90s and the and the early 2000s as a result of it. So I think, I think it, as much as anything, this project showed me the significance of ownership to the success of franchises in terms of building a winning culture and relying on experts in the sports to run the teams rather than simply people who are your close associates. Very interesting. Well, I know that if you're doing media tours, you get a lot of questions about the Falcons, the Hawks, the Braves. But one thing that's intriguing to me, and I think this is a unique part about the city of Atlanta, is the history of hockey in the city. So first off, let's begin with Calgary. How do you see things there in terms of how that franchise came and went? Uh, in, ter- in terms of getting to Calgary or? I mean, the Flames, I should say. Yeah. In terms of how okay, the franchise okay. came Yeah, and I mean, the Flames, the Flames come to Atlanta in 1972. They're an expansion. Fr- the NHL expanded very rapidly beginning in the mid-1960s. In 1967, the NHL goes from a six-team league to a 12-team league. Part of the idea was football in the 1960s had been such a huge attraction on TV. It's really during the 1960s because of football's popularity on TV that football outpaces baseball in terms of popularity. So as a result of football's success on, on CBS and NBC, all of the television networks are basically looking for what they call the next football, the next big television sport. And the two sports that really end up rising to the occasion are hockey and basketball. And both leagues end up expanding dramatically in the 60s and 70s and having rival competitor leagues with the ABA and basketball and the World Hockey Association uh, with hockey as a result of it. And the NHL's rapid expansion ends up moving franchises into all kinds of unusual places. The NHL adds two more teams in 1970, and then an additional two teams, one on Long Island, who become the Islanders, and then the other being the Flames in 1972. And there'd never been a hockey team in the South before. There'd been a minor league team in Knoxville for a few years in the 60s. That was the closest to Atlanta. Atlanta did not have an indoor ice rink of any kind when they got an NHL team. And fans in the early years of the Flames, completely embraced the team. They were playing in a new building, the Omni Arena. They had nice, comfortable, padded seats. It was a fairly expensive evening out, and in a way that gave it a certain appeal to to more affluent consumers. Particularly in the affluent suburbs of Atlanta's north side, this became one of the premier nights out in the city of Atlanta, going to a Flames game. The Flames marketed themselves as being an expensive product, too. Their, Their ad said, Atlanta's Ice Society giving it the idea that this is this is something that has a, a, an upscale kind of appeal to it. It's like having a Gucci handbag or something, going to a Flames game, the way they presented themselves. You want to go to the theater one night, you can come to the Flames another night. The Flames were very good um, for an expansion franchise in the early years. They made the playoffs in six of their eight seasons. And in five of the eight years, they actually, five of their eight years in Atlanta, they actually had above average numbers in terms of attendance. So the team found an audience, a live audience among pretty well-off consumers and also succeeded on the ice because the owner, Tom Cousins, uh, basically turned the operation of the team over to a guy named Cliff Fletcher. Cliff Fletcher had been the general manager of Montreal or the assistant general manager of the Montreal Canadiens. He learned under a guy named Sam Pollock who was basically the architect of all those Canadians championship teams in the 60s and 70s. And Cliff Fletcher knew very well what he was doing building a team. 
And one thing, unlike a lot of expansion franchises, he didn't try to do. He didn't try to get well-known older players as a way to draw people in because he knew people in Atlanta would have no idea who they were anyway. It didn't matter if he brought in Gordy Howe or Bobby Hull. The hockey was just not a known commodity in Atlanta. So he could really build a team from the ground up based on fundamentals. So he built a team that had two very good goaltenders. He got through the expansion draft and Bouchard and Phil Meyer. He built strong defense. The ice was always soft at the Omni because it was warm. So it slowed the game down and made it more defensive. So the Falcons games were always low scoring physical slogs. And they ended up building a very strong and successful team as a result of this. So the team was very good on the ice. Drew very well for most of its history. The problem is that by the, the end of the Flames' tenure in Atlanta, Tom Cousins, the owner, had gotten into some trouble with some of his real estate investments and um, needed to, to basically make up for some lost uh, revenue. And he ends up selling the franchise to some oil investors in Alberta for $20 million, which is several times over what he paid initially to be in the NHL. So it turned into a very good deal for Tom Cousins and helped him um, resuscitate his uh, his real estate fortunes, but it meant an end to the first effort at pro hockey in Atlanta. And if you look at it, Atlanta was by themselves in the NHL. It wasn't like it is now, where there's Carolina and Nashville and the teams in Florida and 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 this 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 whole network of Southern teams in the NHL. The Flames were on an island all on their own in the Southeast and did very well in spite of it. Very interesting. Well. As you said, the first attempt at pro hockey in Atlanta, there would be another one that came later on. I've got one of the posters right here from season three on my wall. Actually, I was oh, a nice. Crashers fan, uh, but came late 90s, I believe, and yep, survived 99. until, got it, 99 and survived until around 2010, 2011, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And that was one of those teams where for me growing up, big Thrashers fan got to that point where all of a sudden there was a newspaper article that my dad showed me and said, hey, the Thrashers are leaving. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what's going on? Like, the news had broken that day of they announced that they're leaving as well. So the second attempt of pro hockey in Atlanta was also interesting, I think, because the attendance was solid. And Atlanta is an interesting hockey market. So how do you feel about the Thrashers and how do you break down what you've seen there from your research? Well, the Thrashers were often a very interesting team. I think they struggled. Uh, their issue was largely something that's happened with almost all of the Southern Un, or I guess Southern slash Sunbelt unconventional hockey markets. There's a core of people who are deeply invested in the team. They have like 10, 11,000 season ticket holders who are just diehard fans and a cluster of another few thousand people who are really, really invested in the team. The problem that a lot of these teams have faced is finding casual fans. If you look at the NFL, there's a lot of people who just kind of turn the game on on Sunday, you know, maybe don't know all the players, maybe know the guys that are on their fantasy team. But the NHL has 10, or the NFL has tens of millions of people who very casually watch the team. Um, Baseball has benefited from that, too. The baseball game something to have on in the evening on TV in the spring and summertime. The Thrashers were unable to get that. They had their core niche audience of people who were very invested in the team. But their television numbers were always quite weak because they had trouble getting the just more casual, ah, let's have the Thrashers game on in the background kind of person. When you can't get advertising for games, it makes it difficult to build a strong television network, makes it tough to get the revenue through this. So financially, the Thrashers ended up being in trouble, not so much because the fans they had weren't passionate. They had a very passionate fan base. The problem was they didn't re reach beyond this group of diehard fans. And this has been the struggle of many of the NHL teams that have moved to the South or into the Southwest places like Phoenix and Los Angeles. Very interesting. Well, when it comes to hockey in Atlanta, 
looking forward, do you think Atlanta gets another shot and how soon might it come? Timing is tough to say. I think it's almost certain Atlanta will get another shot. It's just too big of a market. There's actually been a track record, record to some extent of support with both of those franchises. Um, it's, some, it's the ninth largest market in North America. In some ways, Atlanta's market punches above its weight, too, because it has, it's such the cultural hub of the southeast and has an influence beyond even Atlanta's suburbs. I would be surprised if, if whenever the NHL eventually expands again, that Atlanta is not seriously considered. In both instances, there's been ownership ownership problems, and um, if you get the right owners in with the right uh, the right deal, possibly building a stadium in the suburbs might help them too. Kind of following the Braves model because that's where a lot of the hockey fan base will almost inevitably be. Um, I think it's I think it's a possibility. Very cool. Okay, well. Your book now, Loserville, is available for pre-order on Amazon and on the services overall. But tell us where we can find the book, where we can find you, and when we should expect it to be out. Sure. My, my name is Clayton Truder. My book is Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's being published by the University of Nebraska Press. As you said, Luke, it's available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the well-known online book retailers. Um, it's coming out in early 2022 the actual uh, book you can get, you can make sure you, you're going to have your copy arrive on day one by pre-ordering. Now you can check me out on social media at Clayton Truder, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. I'm also on Facebook. I'm glad to be your, glad to be your buddy there too. And, uh, thank you so much for having me on. And it's uh, been a pleasure to talk about Atlanta sports and talk about my new book. Clayton, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have you on today. Thank you. Have a great afternoon.